explosive subjects today. Uh, talking about marriage, and we're going to be talking about divorce as well. And it is a very, it, it is an explosive subject because uh, so many of us have been impacted by it. Uh, there are so many feelings involved in it. Uh, so let me say at the onset that there is no perfect person. Let me say that right now. There is no one perfect in this room. The only person that has ever been perfect was Jesus Christ, number one. Number two, this is not the unforgivable sin that we're talking about today. There, God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of second chances. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for actions. But as we enter into this subject today, we're going to be talking, uh, you know, marriage is not an easy subject. Uh, someone once said that marriage is a little bit like a deck of cards. You can start out with two hearts and a diamond, and then you, you end up with a club and a spade. <laughs> marriage is tough. It can be. You know, it's, it's been said also that to be happy with a man, you must understand him a lot and love him a little. To be happy with a woman, you have to love her a lot and try not to understand her at all. Okay? And, and, and marriage is, is a tough subject. It's, one of the, it's, it's in the news. We're, we're talking about it. Everywhere we go, it seems like it can't be, uh, the subject can't be escaped. And again, there are so many different feelings and things involved. And as a pastor, to stand up in front of you, um, it's not a fun message. This isn't a subject that I enjoy talking about because I know all the painful ramifications and choices and things that have happened, not just choices we made, but choices, uh, things that have happened to us that we didn't have no bearing on. So I hope to come to you today as a, uh, as a surgeon with a scalpel of God's word to cut, not to harm, but to heal. Uh, it is a painful subject, as I mentioned before, but our hope and my prayer is that God would use this to draw us closer to himself. And uh, I, I'm going to say right at the onset of this, this is not going to be pleasant. Um, surgery rarely is. And so I, I come at you humbly. Uh, I come at you believing God has created and ordained marriage and how it should be, and therefore he has set forth, according to his word, how it is to operate. And so we'll be going to the word of God together um, and walking through these passages to see what God has for us. Because as we've learned, we've seen, and, and we've seen in our world, marriage, there's a war against marriage. Not only in, in just marriages in general, we're talking about the promotion of gay marriage, we're seeing uh, no-fault divorce, we see uh, people living together, and I know that many in this room have, that might be the situation you're in. But allow me to come alongside and to, sh to go to the Word of God together. So please, uh, come with me as we go on this journey. Let us see what God has, because this is what God has, and it is what is best for all of us. And it's not because God desires to harm us, to hurt us, but God has laid forth a pathway and a way for us to live and to order our lives that we might have fullness of joy as we seek his face. So let's ask for God's blessing on our message time today. Let's pray. Father, help us, direct us, show us. Lord, we have so many different personal feelings and emotions and so often painful experiences 
Lord, we pray that your word might clear away the fog of fog of sin and self and of our culture and we might clearly see what your word has for us and how we might live and operate so that we might experience fullness of joy and experience your blessing we ask your blessing on our time now in jesus name amen you know as i i, I look into this i've i've stood at the altar um pronouncing a husband and wife and one of the things that i often say is is to have and to hold from this day forth as long as you both shall live. Now, it's interesting. When you do that, that used to be a very solemn thing, but now people kind of laugh at it, that it's archaic. But it's something that God has set forth, and we're going to see today is that God has designed marriage for us to have and to hold, to hold on together, and that God is the orchestrator and purposer and creator of marriage. Therefore, he has laid forth what it is to be, He is the sole definer of what it is. So for us to understand and apply these words that we heard today on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we have to to really delve into God's plan for marriage. That's the first point I want you to write down. You can write that down in your notes. Delving into God's plan for marriage. This is not a human construction. It's not established by the courts or committee, but by the Creator Himself. This This predates everything else within... Um, our world today. This predates government. It predates schooling. It predates everything. It is at the very foundation of society that God has his plan for marriage. And what I, I hope to see today as we go into this is see how God has made it. And we're going to look and see how the, the ramifications of uh, it in greater society and what happens when that's pulled away or it's destroyed. And then to, to finish this off, to see what God has for us to be and do. So delving into God's plan for marriage. Now, if we were to do that, we first need to start and go back and, and get the program for the very first marriage ceremony. And that's in Genesis chapter 2. I want to throw that up here for you. This is, uh, obviously, we know the story of Adam and Eve. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He goes on, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I want to go through some observations on this text because this text will help us understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. Because by the time we get to Matthew 5, we see that marriage had been really messed up, and Jesus is trying to clear away all the fog and show what's going on and what God's intent was from the very beginning. First of all, we can see that marriage is rooted in creation. Rooted in creation. It goes back to creation itself. As I mentioned before, it predates schools, institutions, everything. Family is at the very foundation of our society. 
Next, we can see that marriage is defined by a couple, a male and a female. Male and a female. It's amazing to me that that is now controversial to say that, but it is, is exactly where we're at today. Uh, Satan has been very much at work. It didn't involve one man and two women, or, t- or two women and, uh, and one man, or two women or two men, or a man and his goat, or a man in his car, or a man in his operating system. Uh, as the movie that has just come out recently with uh, Joaquin Phoenix called Her, it's about a man's love relationship with his operating system. And that's where we're coming today. Uh, people even talking about marrying robots and all kinds of things. And in uh, and, and many of these cases that are people trying to seek this type of marriage, they cite the fact that gay marriage changed everything. And he's right. They're right. When you open the door, it opens it for everything, and Pandora's box is, is open. And so we have to, as believers in Christ, God has laid forth within his word what we are to be and do. So we see that it involved one couple. Thirdly, marriage is entered into by a covenant. A covenant. Now we've had a lot of discussion and debate as a staff talking about what constitutes a marriage as we have been trying to deal with what we see going on in greater society. And we see that it's not just a contract, but it's a covenant. And what that means is it's something that is to be permanent, lifelong, lasting. And within Scripture, there's the understanding of a fusion, the two becoming one flesh. There's a fusion, and the word there is indicating like glue. Now, if you've ever had something that's glued together and you tried to tear it apart, what happens? It, it destroys it, right? It rips part of it out. And for those that have gone divorced, that's what it's like. And, you know, it's interesting. One rabbi said this. He goes, the difference between um, death and divorce, he says, death is over. Divorce is never over. and Because it does. It's just tearing apart. Because God has, has made it to be this one flesh union. Now, we see Hollywood and the media trivializing this all the time. Even social scientists are doing it. Because it, it, it's not something that can be looked at scientifically. It's something that has to be understood spiritually because it is a spiritual union. There's a mystical union that is taking place in this one flesh union. And it was in, to be entered into by covenant. Now, in our world today, we have no clue of that, on how that works. In the Old Testament, covenants were the utmost serious thing imaginable. Now, uh, marriage wasn't entered, to, entered into by this kind of covenant, but it had similar ramifications. But a covenant in the Old Testament was often made by two parties mutually agreeing and obliging themselves to fulfill these covenant stipulations. And what they would do is they would cut an animal in half, and they would spread the, the, take the two halves of that animal, and then the two parties would walk between those two halves of that animal through this blood, indicating that this is to what is to happen if one of us fails to fulfill our stipulations and obligations, that we would be killed. Now today, we're like, whoa, that's nuts. That just shows the seriousness of it. I mean, even, even in our generation, we have lost a lot of what the previous generations understood by giving our word. When we say our word, we mean how long, as long as it's convenient, expedient, right? We say, oh, I make a promise. That means nothing in our society anymore. And that's why I like interacting with some of the older folks, the, the people that are of that greatest generation. I had this one man, he said, my word is my bond, and he lived by that. And he would rather die than... than violate what he said. And in scripture, you see that God, it's a covenant and it's not just a public declaration, but it's a public declaration before God himself. 
So it's a very serious and sober thing. And, and the media and Hollywood and, and the rise of deconstructionism and postmodernism and, and the removal of uh, the questioning of patriarchal structures and the rise of feminism and the militant gay rights movement, all of these different things have competed to be at war with marriage, to bring it down so it's nothing more than just a mutual agreement for a period of time. And even, I mean, it could be 72 hours. Chris Humphreys and Kim Kardashian. Right? We see that going on. We've talked about this a million times. Where are the most beautiful people in the, in the world? Hollywood. Worst marriages? Hollywood. So yeah, why do we keep going back again and again and again and looking at them as examples of how we're to live and be? And that's why we get so screwed up. Shows like the Jersey Shore and, I mean, that show just shows me Jesus is coming back. Okay? Like soon. All right? Because it, it, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. So we have to see what did God desire it to be. It was fixed by a permanent commitment. It was entered into by covenant, and it was to be a permanent commitment. It was to be permanent. It was until death does them part. That was the only thing that could make the marriage dissoluble. Death. We'll come back to that in a little while. And it was consummated by cleaving on the honeymoon night. Again, I, I realize what I'm saying seems so passe. Uh, it seems so counterculture to where we're at in our hookup culture. And undoubtedly, I know many of us have made those choices. That's why I said God's forgiveness is for everybody. But I want us to reconsider what sexuality itself is. Because the lines are not as blurred as you think. And, and God is not mocked. What a man reaps, he, I mean, what a man sows, he will also reap. So though the world might go around, you might see people doing it, just because consequences are delayed doesn't mean they're denied. That they will occur. And many of you bear the marks on your souls and your lives at those choices, and you can testify to that. It's to cleave on the honeymoon night. Now, it's interesting. It was so serious in the Jewish culture that that... um, that cleaving only occurred then. Uh, and the bride, the, the wedding was a ceremony that lasted for several days. It was a big, giant community party. And at the first night, the groom would take the bride into the bridal chamber where they would have intercourse, and it would be on a certain type of bridal cloak, and there would be inevitable, um, how should we say, uh, marks in a PC crowd, marks that the woman had her virginity. And if those marks weren't there, there would be some bleeding, um, then he could accuse her of adultery or fornicating before they got married, and she could be taken, ex- taken outside, and they would show it. And if it was blank, she could be executed immediately by the greater community. That's how much they treasured sexuality. And that is so completely controversial in our day and age. Because people are like, what about me then? What about me? What have I done? I mean, I've been killed many times. I'm just showing you God's standard. Not to, to, to beat you down, but just to show that, that we need to reconsider who God is and what he has laid forth within his word. And I said before, and I'm going to bring this home again and again and again, there is forgiveness and there's hope. Forgiveness and hope. Don't forget that. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It was consummated by cleaving on the honeymoon night. It was a very serious thing. And God wrote 
that it was to be established to bring about godly children. To bring about godly children. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. I want to throw this up there. Uh, this is the last book of the Old Testament. And this is what the scripture says. And this second thing you do, this is God speaking to the Israelites. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer offer, is, uh, regards the offering excuse me, or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? So these people are going to God, they're pleading, they're crying, they're, they're just, low, oh, Lord. And, and God's saying, stop it. Stop it. I'm not listening. Why? Because you've been faithless. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. He goes on. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit? The Spirit of God. This is where we get life. In the union of man and woman, there is this miraculous creation of life. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So it's the purpose of bringing forth children as he allows. Now I know that there are some here who haven't been able to bear children. And, and, and these are one of the mysteries that I don't understand why God has allowed that. He, he's doing something in and through them. And it might be to lead them to adoption. There are many children out there um, that, are, that are in need of homes. It, it could be for whatever reason. I'm not sure. God's doing something in and through a person. The fall affects us in different ways. But God has uh, designed marriage to help bring forth, as he allows, godly children. Children. And I'm amazed at the, the increasing amount of couples that are getting married and not ever having kids. And I, in some ways, I feel sorry for them. Because you, though children are exhausting, they're immensely rewarding. It's this double, double standard, isn't it? Not? For those that are parents, it's like, oh, I'm so tired. But look at the pictures of the little guy. Like last night, okay, I, my wife and my, my family showed up. I was working here at the church and writing my sermon. And I was showing my wife something that uh, she was showing me a rug that's going into the nursery. And I look up, and there's my son with, <laughs> he's got a t-shirt on and, and Spider-Man underwear. And he's got these Batman boots, and he's running to the bathroom. And I'm like, where's his pants? Where's his pants? I feel like I'm saying that a lot to my son. I don't know why that is, but I, I just feel like that. And, I, and he infuriates me, but at the same time, I just can't help but laugh. She's like, well, he spilled water over himself. I'm like, get some pants on, son. And they infuriate me, but I love them. Isn't that the way it is? They're exhausting, but yet there's a joy that comes from them. And also a lot of heartache. A lot of heartache. So God has established it to bring forth godly children. And so when we see that the marriage is so serious, or this one flesh nature, and we see, though, people tearing that asunder all the time, and people say, well, is there any time that I can dissolve this marriage? And, and whatever circumstances happen. And there's a million different reasons why. Jesus is, in the Pharisees, this is not a new argument, by the way. This is not a new discussion, a new debate. This was going on in Jesus' day between the religious leaders. What could constitute dissolving a marriage? And they had all these different reasons. In matter of fact, Jesus, in this passage, when he's talking about a certificate of a divorce, he's quoting and referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, where it said that if a man found some type of indecency in his wife, that he could send her on her way. Now, rabbis debated on what that meant. Some said the indecency referred to complete sexual immorality. That was the very conservative school of thought. And there was another school of thought that said it, was, uh, it could be for any indecency. And only a man could, by the way, in the Old Testament, divorce his wife. 
We see, though, with the influx of Romans and Greek thought and uh, changing that in the New Testament, you see then some women even divorcing their wives or during that period of time, not necessarily in Scripture, but during that period of time. But a man could, in, if he found any type of indecency, this liberal school of thought said, if she burned your meal, you could divorce her. And all he would have to say is, is I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it was in that society, at that time, it wasn't like today where you could go off, get your own place, get your own job. I mean, it was like destitute. And many women had to resort to prostitution. I mean, this is a different culture, different period of time. I mean, in, in, in our society today, a lot of those consequences, um, more obvious consequences, are removed. Now, we see, though, that a marriage can be dissolved, but we shouldn't be looking at for the loopholes. Too often we're looking for loopholes. Like W.C. Fields, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He was the great atheist, and one time uh, he was uh, found reading a Bible, and he, they said, why? He goes, I'm looking for loopholes. And I think many of us, that's how we are. We're trying to find loopholes to justify the decisions we're getting to make. And that's what Jesus is not talking about. He's not saying look for loopholes. He's saying that it can be dissolved in certain circumstances, but that's not what you're to be focusing on. You're to be focusing on making the marriage work. Now, what are those certain circumstances? First of all, we can see and get an idea of this in Romans chapter 7, verse 2 through 3. So let's throw that one up there. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Now, Paul is writing this, giving an illustration of the power of the law. And he's saying that it operates on a person as long as they live. And he is using as an illustration or metaphor to support his argument the marriage covenant. He says, while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not and adulteress, which is why you've, you've heard this discussion undoubtedly before of the man and wife who've been married 40 years, and they asked the woman the secret, and they said, did you ever in that 40-year period of time think of divorce? And she said, divorce? Never. Murder? Maybe. Okay. Uh, and that's the only way out. <laughs> Murder? Maybe. And that's how some people have thought about it. They think that, I mean, murder is a definite alternative. There's a, a story, a bit of apocryphal story of, a, of a, a church setting that was going on, and, and the devil showed up in the middle of the ceremony, and everybody ran out except one man. And he just sat there, and the devil said, Aren't you afraid? He said, I've been married to your sister for 40 years. That's awful. It's awful. That's how some people see it. They hold on to this bitterness, this pain. And they keep records of these verbal wounds. Now, what's the scripture say? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for actions. Doesn't mean we'd be willy-nilly and aren't discerning. It means really bringing things into focus. So the first way that we see a marriage to be dissolved is by the death of a spouse. The death of a spouce. That's the first way that it, the, the thing that dissolves a marriage union. Here's the second. First, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. And Paul is writing, he's giving clarification uh, and expanding on what Jesus had said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and in, uh, we see him just drawing out some of the things that Jesus had spoke to about how we are to behave as Christians. He says this, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, 
Um, not to say that this isn't inspired, admitting that Jesus didn't say this directly um, during his lifetime, uh, but he is expanding on the teaching of Christ as the Holy Spirit is enabling him. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, we see this going on in a lot of different uh, Muslim cultures, still going on today, where what this is a uh, situation it's describing is, is that one of the spouses has become a believer, and the, the reason that the uh, uh, unsaved spouse, they, they can't take that, any longer, seeing how their life is shifted, so they're leaving. And you see that within Muslim cultures, uh, where the man will become a dedicated Muslim, and his wife uh, doesn't want to leave, or, or the woman becomes a dedicated Christian, and the Muslim man says, I'm out of there. And, and you can see this in a lot of different situations. There's a story that I was reading, as I was or, or heard about through D.A. Carson, a scholar at Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School, was talking about how there was a couple who had an open marriage where they both had different uh, people that they were having sexual relations with other than their spouse, and the woman becomes a Christian. And she starts feeling convicted, and she says, you can continue to do that, I'm not. I can't in good conscience do this, but I'm going to try to be the wife that God wants me to be. And the guy said, no, you're not the one I married, and he just totally left her. Totally left her. Because she changed. And that's what we see going on here. Is one of the, the individuals becomes a believer. And he's saying, if you were a believer and you are married to an unbeliever, you shouldn't be the one leaving. If they want to leave, they can. But if, if uh, you should not. You should not do that. So we see then that marriage can be dissolved by the desertion of an unbelieving spouse. Desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now, there is a third circumstance by which a marriage may be permitted to be dissolved that comes from today's passage. It was also said, as Jesus says, uh, and Matthew 19, by the way, elaborates on Matthew 5, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on these grounds, sexual immorality, which is the word porneia, Okay, there's two different words that he uses in this passage. There is porneia, which is the general understanding of anything that is uh, sexually deviant. And that means intercourse outside of marriage, homosexual intercourse, bestiality, all of those are included within that. He doesn't use the word moikia, which is the word for adultery. Specifically, he's using the word porneia. So he's saying here then that they can, he's saying that it's, not for any reason. So he's correcting that liberal school of thought. He says you can't do it for whatever reason you want. It's only on this ground because that is what separates that marriage union. This is why sexuality is to be held so high. And we see our world today, it trivializes it. Not only that, it makes it into own God itself. Where sex itself becomes a God. We see it coming out in pornography. We see the broken marriages that are going on. And we see it everywhere. And we're seeing, we're seeing more and more sex, uh, sex trafficking. Um, we're seeing it in, in different counseling offices. Uh, the other day, uh, last week, I had an opportunity to interact with a man named Thomas Adikula. He's an Indian man. I uh, met him when I was in India. And he is a, a professor at Harvard, Harvard University. And he is at the number one, uh, he's actually a psychiatrist, he's a Christian man, and he is the, uh, at the number one psychiatric hospital in the entirety of the United States. This is a smart guy. 
And I was talking to him, and I said, what are the things that you see in the disintegration of the family? And he said, the number one thing that we see is sexual abuse. Number one. And what it does to the family. And it's girls. And he said, one of seven girls has been sexually abused in some way, shape, or form in the United States. And I said, well, I can't think what those numbers are in India. And he goes, it's infinitely higher. Infinitely higher. And he's seeing that it's going on. It's, it's destroying lives. And all, most of the counseling situations that we have are these people that have been abused. Sexually abused. And it's, it's rampant everywhere. And that's why I'm amazed. I've been keeping up with different newspapers across the world. And one that I've been keeping up that's going on in India, uh, it's called the Times of India. And here they're talking about these rapes that are going on. Uh, and, and it's going on a lot in different parts of India. Not everywhere, but um, it's going on in different parts. And then at the same time, they're having these risque photos of people half naked. And, I, and I'm like, did you notice there's a connotation here? There's a connection? Pornography inevitably leads to this. And yet people are just like, they don't see that connection, that it always is a downward spiral of disobedience. And what I don't care what culture you're in. And it's rampant. So we have to go back and say, what does God say about human sexuality and what is a marriage and how we're to make it work? So we see that there's a sexual immorality that has gone on that allows it to be dissolved. However, however, um, as I say that, we need to understand that the defiling of the marriage bond through unrepentant sexual immorality is a means for dissolving. Okay, that's that next point. Defiling of the marriage bond through unrepentant sexual immorality. Now, I, I nuanced that, and I did it on purpose. Because the tenor of Scripture is what? If your brother sins against you, how many times do you forgive him? 70 times 7 or 77 times? A lot. It's to be an innumerable, innumerable amount. If someone has had a one-night stand, and, and they're looking for forgiveness, and, and they're looking for, they're confessed they're broken, I, you should try to make that marriage work. These are for people that are, it's ongoing. They're not stopping. They're continuing on and on. The tenor of Scripture is forgiveness and restoration. Now, can you divorce in that? Dissolve? Yes, but it's going to be a very painful process. And my recommendation is just make it work. You might have to, to separate for a period of time, but God can work through amazing circumstances and testify. There are so many couples that can testify to what God did through their marriage that seem to be so broken, but God worked a miracle in their lives and brought them back together. So, we see there that it's through the defiling of the marriage bond through unrepentant sexual immorality. We see that also illustrated in the book of Hosea, with Hosea and Gomer who'd gone off into prostitution, and yet he keeps coming back, and he loves her. We see that going on as well. So, while it is true that these three, death of a spouse, desertion of an unbelieving spouse, or defilement of the marriage bond, allowances are biblical, remarriage is never commanded, but it is always a concession. A concession in Scripture. So it's not commanded. It is a concession. God has allowed it to a Occur, allowed it to occur. So why all this fuss? I mean, what's the big deal after all? And, and people, undoubtedly, you could give to me a million different examples right now if I asked. Uh, I'm trying to focus on general overarching principles. Okay? If you have a question about specific instances, please come talk to myself or Scott Brown. We'd love to talk with you. But why all this fuss? Well, there's all this fuss because of what's going on in our world today. And, and I think we've largely 
failed to grasp the meaning of marriage. And Jesus is laying forth with us, saying, I want you to grasp the marriage meaning. Now, we're going to go through this rather quickly, okay? But I want you to stay with me. We need to, it requires us understanding that marriage is at the foundation of society. As I mentioned earlier at the onset, this predates government, it predates schooling, it predates everything. It is the foundation of society. Marriage has an even greater meaning. I mean, remember that the first thing God said was not good for the man to be alone. So, one of the things that we can see is it's one of God's prescriptions for loneliness. One of God's prescriptions for loneliness. We get lonely. I remember when I was single, I would just long and wonder, what is the wife that God has for me? And I felt this just longing within my soul. Then I got married, and I didn't feel that anymore. Matter of fact, I'm too overjoyed that she actually married me. And I have to remind her of that all the time. I'm just freaked out. I'm like, and, and, you know, I've been taking her to the eye doctor because my in-law said that she had cataracts. So I'm just making sure that that's not true. Okay? It's at the foundation of society. It's one of God's prescriptions for loneliness. And perhaps the most striking uh, metaphor is that it is the greatest picture of our salvation. The greatest picture of our salvation. When Jesus refers to, we we see the marriage relationship, we see of Jesus' love for his church. Jesus is often called the bridegroom, and the church is called his bride. His bride. We see this illustrated in in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Then he goes on. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Profound. The mysterion, this great mystery that had been uh, once not known, now is made known. It refers to Christ in the church. See, this is a great picture of Christ's love for us, that he sacrificially gave himself for us. And we are to give ourselves for one another. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's the greatest picture of our salvation. Marriage is also one of the means of our sanctification. We see that in that passage that I just referred to in Ephesians 5, where he says that it was the washing of water with the word. We also see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I call this the impossible command. Because I have learned one thing is that I'll never understand. I'll try. I really do. And most of the time I end up just saying, yes. Okay? I've learned. There are certain things. My wife likes to reorganize our living room. I, I used to fight. I don't anymore. I just look at it as a new game. It's a new maze in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know, new way to find direction. But she, she's, she's, she's always learning and adapting. That's what I love about her. With me, I'm a pretty boring guy. I mean, I could wear gray and brown all day long. Okay, my wife's got color. And she's like, what do you think of this? I'm like, it's a lot of color. <laughs> but it's, it's just the mystery of how God has made things. 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That means, how does it mean to live with your wife in an understanding way? It means communicating, loving, romancing, dating, spending time. It's not an easy thing to do. i got to work on this. My wife reminds me that I should. But living in an understanding way, we're all changing. That's what it means. And it helps us in our sanctification. It pushes us. As a matter of fact, God says this is so serious in Peter that if your relationship with your spouse is not right, your prayers are hindered. Wow, that's pretty huge. See, we have a tendency to separate our spiritual life from everyday life. And God says, no, 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 no. It's all intimately connected. It's holistic. It's not just the spiritual and then your daily life, work and school, and how you're going to do your business and your taxes. No, your, your marriage life, which is the most intimate relationship you have, affects your relationship with Almighty God. He lays that out. So it's one of the means of our sanctification. Next, we can see that marriage is essential to establishing our identification. Our identification. We see this alluded to in Ephesians three fourteen through 15. As the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That he has set forth the family, and that God has set forth the family, so we learn who we are. That's why people that are adopted, and if you are adopted, I think many adopted kids struggle with, who am I? Where do I come from? What's my background? Who are my parents? And we're always searching for that, trying to figure out who we are. And, and it's, that's where we learn in the roles between men and women. It's huge that we learn what it means to be a man. We learn what it means to be a woman. That's why you see this interesting movement going on right now. With children that grew up in same-sex households, they are revolting and standing against gay marriage. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they talk about suing their parents because they were denied the opportunity to see what it meant to be a man and a woman. This is something that sociologists try to say, oh, no, there's not a big deal. People bear the scars of this. And I grew up in a single-parent household, okay? I struggled as a kid to know what it meant to be a man. Was it what I saw on TV? I mean, the best example I had besides a grandfather and coaches was Bill Cosby. I loved that show. I mean, he was a great example of what, as a loving father who cared and secured. And as a kid, I, I, I looked to that. I didn't have an earthly father. He died. And it's essential to understand that, what it means to be a man and a woman. I remember when I was a youth pastor in Chicago, it was late one night. We had youth ministry. It was a Friday night. I think it was like 930 at night. It was the middle of winter. I had this small screened-in back porch. I had 17 young men that had gathered around me, desperate to know what it meant to be a man because all of them had grown up without fathers. It's something that God has placed within us to know what it means to be a man, to be a woman. And unfortunately today, it's not the parents helping do that. It is the media. With these screenagers that we have. That's what they call teenagers today, screenagers. Every time I turn around, one of my kids has got a screen on. And they see me do it. I got to work on that. I do. I got to work on that. To know what it means to have a personal relationship and know what it means to love and to identify. Another thing that marriage does is act as a means of protection for the family. An act of protection for the family. As I was studying this message, I came across this story by H. Norman Wright, who is a preeminent marriage counselor in California. And he gives this description of what it does uh, to this one young lady. 
uh, this is what he or she remembered. Come into the living room, children, was what her parents said. We have something we need to tell you. That's how our parents told us they were not going to be together anymore. After they told us they were divorcing, I sat under the table and my mind replayed again and again the words of my, that my father said. I didn't know when it all, what it all meant, but I soon learned. After dad left, I looked through the drawers where he kept his clothes and found an old sweatshirt he left behind. I hid it in my room and kept it for years. I would cling to it when I was lonely for him. My father came back to see us a few times, but his visits became less and less frequent. Finally, his visits stopped completely. I always wondered where he went and wondered if he thought about us very much. I hope that he did, but I'll guess I'll never know. Felt unprotected. Something had happened. Remove that protection. It's how we, my children, uh, my daughter, when one of her classmates' parents were getting divorced, she came to me and she goes, Daddy, they're never going to divorce, right? It was such a pain in her. I said, no, honey, I'm not going to do that. Never going to do that. God allows, I'm never going to do that. She was like, good. Just brought the sigh of relief. It was fear. This pain that goes through. And I know many of you have been through that. And you weep and you hurt and you wish you could go back and change it. That's what I said at the onset. and Keep going. Christ's forgiveness is for all of us. So it's a means of protection for the family, and it also helps in the preservation of society. Helps in the preservation of society. Tony Evans, a great pastor in Dallas, uh, said this, Foundation, foundational to strong families are strong marriages. Put another way, failed marriages cannot produce the unified, enduring families needed to support our troubled society. When children grow up in loveless homes, they don't learn the crucial lessons necessary to develop good self-images and to build strong marriages for themselves later. When children see their fathers coercing submission from their mothers through fear and intimidation, they learn a warped definition of manhood and womanhood, which often results in poor behavior and communication. My daughter asked me the question the other day, Daddy, why do parents, some parents beat their kids? And I said, most chances are is because they were beat themselves. We have a tendency to copy what was done to us. When a father, Evans goes on, abandons his family, a son learns that this is an option for him in the future, and a daughter learns to fear a similar desertion by the man she marries. These and far too many other situations like them are especially devastating in urban settings where, coupled with many other problems, there is a massive destruction of the family. He goes on, if urban America is going to rebuild its communities morally, socially, and spiritually, it is going to have to begin by rebuilding families. To do that, Marriages must function as God intended. That is particularly important for Christian marriages because the church is the most potent force for community change. If the church is to be properly equipped to bring about that change, it needs to be focused on building strong families. Christian marriages must be solid so that the family unit and thereby the church can do its job effectively. As As Village Bible Church, what we have committed ourselves to do as elders is to help make marriages work. If you're a member of Village Bible Church, we have covenanted and committed ourselves to helping make your marriage work. So if you're experiencing trouble, going through a hard time, we're there going to try to be there for you in every which way to help make that marriage work. Whether it means calling individuals to repentance, whether it means helping get counseling, whatever it is, we are committed here to help your marriage work. Next, we see that marriage... A thing that marriage does is act to help in our physical satisfaction. Can't forget that one. It's kind of the glaring one. To help in our physical satisfaction. You know, the Bible talks about this. The Bible talks about sex. God made it, so he desires us to know how it functions properly. 
We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, this is Paul speaking by the Spirit, writing to the church at Corinth. He says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Meaning that we have sexual desires. And we should have one person to fulfill that with. Our husband or our wife. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, that I, as I myself am, which he means single, because he's devoted himself completely to the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom of God. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He's saying that marriage is a gift. It's a charisma in the word in Greek. It's a gift of God. And singleness is a charisma, a gift from God. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is married to burn, better to marry than to burn with passion. The seriousness of this, this, this passage. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not... And now he is quoting and looking back at Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Not divorce his wife. So, what's my point of going through all this? What's my point? It is that as Christians, we should be, more than anyone else, all about supporting and fighting for biblical marriage. It is essential for the preservation of society, our identity as individuals, for the protection of children and spouses, etc. We have to live our lives and be committed to our marriages in such a way that unbelievers should question their unbelief. But marriage is not about looking for loopholes or trying to find a, find a way out. That's what many do. And unfortunately, that's what many Christians have done. God desires that we fight for our marriages, and that means we need to be leaving behind the mess marriage is in today. That's my third point. I'm going to go through this rather quickly, and I'm going to give some practical advice at the end. Um, first of all, it's this. Jesus, I mean, the reason we're in the mess we're in today is because of the hardening of our hearts. The hardening of our hearts. Whether it's, and it's hard, it's the hearts of our, ourselves, our own hearts of what we have done, or the hardening of it, the individual that we were married to, and, and that caused the, the dissolving. Um, and Jesus says that it wasn't the original intent. It's because of sin entering into the world. So if we're to leave this mess behind, that it requires us, as believers in Christ, disavowing divorce. As far as it depends on you, do not divorce. If you're a Christian, do not divorce. Fight for your marriage. Next, make sure that you are committing to the covenant you made. Commit to the covenant you made, which means fight for it. It means learning. It means trying to explore and find out who they are and, and growing together and communicating together. Marriage is work. It's delightful, but it can be hard work. There are times where you'll get so frustrated that you want to strangle each other. And there's other times that you're just going to be overjoyed at God bringing you together. Now, if you are divorced, and neither you nor they have remarried, it may mean prayerfully seeking reconciliation with your spouse. And I say that prayerfully. As God allows me, he's being patient. 
It's not going to happen overnight. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Uh, This one man was getting ready to divorce his wife. They were separated, and he started going through his check stubs um, over the years, and he started to know each check stub brought back a memory of something with his wife. He saw the honeymoon check. He sees the check of the time he bought her flowers or their anniversary and birthdays and their children and buying clothes, and he calls her up, and he says, Honey, we have too much invested in this. Would you take me back? He was just broken by it. So we have to seek reconciliation. If reconciliation is not possible, then with them, um, they've remarried or they're carrying on in some awful way, whether it's uh, some type of deviant sexual behavior, homosexuality, living with somebody else, then you may want to entertain the possibility of staying single. Entertain the the possibility of staying single. I've known different individuals who've gone through divorce and are waiting for the opportunity to reconcile As so often happens, the spouse may have remarried, and the individual decides to stay single. You don't have to be married. Um, Paul was single, as was Jesus. Anna was widowed in the New Testament and never remarried. And there are some other saints whom God has used to do great things for the kingdom who chose to stay single. Mother Teresa, John Stott are great cases in point. Uh, If you have been married and are divorced, or you have made some poor choices in the sexual realm, I want you to remember that Jesus' death enables us all, gives us all the ability to be finding forgiveness. Gives us all the ability to be finding forgiveness. Now, when I say forgiveness, you can be forgiven for sins, but that doesn't mean that God removes all the consequences for your action. People have a tendency to think, for whatever reason, that if I'm forgiven of my sin, that I don't have to deal with the consequences any longer. No. You can get drunk one night, drive your car, and crash and someone's dead, that doesn't change the fact they're dead. You might repent of it, but that doesn't change the consequence of the action. And I mean, the same with, with people that are, I mean, maybe you're a one that um, you've made some poor choices in the sexual realm. You might have venereal disease. You might have a child. It's not a curse, a consequence. It's a blessing to have a child. But yet, you know and bear it within your mind and, and hearts, the life that you're having to figure out now that it's not occurring within the, the way that you wanted it, that God wants it to occur. So you have to, to now remain pure and be patient and focus on your relationship with God and let him direct you if, in, to that person and don't rush it. But also stay pure. Stay pure. Now, for those that say, hey, I'm in this state right now, I don't know how to get out of it, let me, let me, let me close with this. How many of you remember the movie Back to the Future? Remember that Back to the Future? Okay. In the movie, if you remember, okay, Michael J. Fox is in 1985, and he gets thrust back to 1955. And he is trying to deal, uh, he, he has entered into a situation that ends up messing up the future for him and his two siblings, brother and sister. And so he's trying throughout the movie to get his parents to meet and fall in love so that he and his brother and sister will have a future. And you see him at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, Okay. And he's playing the guitar, and he's looking at the picture of his family, and what starts to happen with the family members? You remember? They're starting to fade. See, the more that you continue on in disobedience, the more your future is fading away. Your future blessing is fading. The more that you stay in the situation of disobedience that you're in, the blessing is being taken away from you in the future. What you need to do is be obedient and then watch that blessing come back. That blessing will be there. 
And you might find yourself in a situation now, and, 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 and God bless you, if you are married and, and it, it was an adulterous beginning, then you're married now. There's a new union. You make that marriage work. We need to go back to what God says. Clear away the cultural mess that we're in, that we might experience the blessing that he has for us. Because if we continue on in disobedience, that blessed future is fading. But if we orchestrate our lives and place ourselves under the authority of his word, that blessing is appearing before us for his glory and our joy. Amen? Amen. Let me close our message time with a word of prayer. Father, we know that you gave your son to die for us. And Lord, none of, the, none of us in this room have done it perfectly. Not one of us. Whether it's been in our actions, whether it's been in our thoughts, whether it's been in our attitudes, we've, we have struggled and we have sinned. And we know that divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Uh, we know that there is forgiveness. But Lord, help us to uphold our marriages, to think more soberly about what marriage is and even what sexuality is. And Lord, for those who uh, are living in a state of disobedience right now, I pray, Lord, that you help show them the way out. Show them that the, there is a future of blessing, but they have to respond. And Lord, whatever situation that they are in, I pray that you show them there is a way out. In the scripture, Lord, you have laid forth it in your word that there is no temptation that is not common to man, but you are faithful and you will always provide a way out. And it might mean making some very difficult choices and Lord, we might have to suffer for the greatness of your kingdom as we stay true to your word and what your word has said for us. Lord, please give us the strength to do so because our world wars against such thought. Lord, the world says, be happy, not holy. And you're saying, Lord, you're saying to us, Lord, be holy and then you'll be happy. Lord, help us to be holy, set apart, committed to our marriage. Whether we've blown it, Lord, help us to rebuild it. Lord, as you showed within your word that you will restore what the, the, the things that the locusts have eaten and destroyed. And Lord, we know that locusts of sin have destroyed many of our lives, choices that we have made and the consequences that we ourselves suffer. And Lord, I pray that you help show us what it means to live in the forgiveness that has been given to us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and help to accept the consequences and to bear up underneath them as your grace has been afforded to us because when we are weak, then you are strong. May your name receive glory. But Lord, help us to be a, a church, individuals broken though we are. May we uphold the standards of your word. May we come alongside one another with love, pointing people to Christ, that they might experience the joy of forgiveness and reconciliation with him. So Lord, please glorify yourself in our lives and in our church through the sacrifice of your son. In his name we pray.